0: Karashi, Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Research Podcast. It's October 29th, 2020, and today we welcome surgeon scientist Philip Starr. Hi, Philip. Hello. Philip holds the Dolores Cakebread Endowed Chair in Neurologic Surgery and is a faculty member of the UCSF Graduate Program in Neuroscience. Um, he co-directs the UCSF Surgical Movement Disorders Clinic, which is one of four national Bachmann-Strauss Centers of Excellence in the Treatment of Movement Disorders. His um, clinical interests are in functional neurosurgery, specifically in the use of implanted devices to improve brain function. His, um, his research program, his active, very active research program, works in tandem to decipher how movement disorders alter brain network function, also to understand the mechanisms through which uh, neurostimulation remediates symptoms, and finally how to refine and build better, more mechanistically informed stimulation protocols and devices. So, such a pleasure to have you. So um, in the gallery today, we've got two basal ganglia network specialists. uh, Good old Charlie Wilson. Hi, Charlie. Hi. And we've got Matt Higgs. Hi, Matt.
1: Hi.
0: So, um, I want to point uh, listeners and viewers uh, who are interested in uh, neuromodulation and Parkinson's disease to check out our 2019 Brain Oscillations in Parkinson's Disease Symposium podcast, uh, which lives in our audio archive and has Charlie leading a really fun discussion with, uh, with Philip's colleagues, Jerry Vitek, Judy Walters, Rob Turner, and Mark Bevin. Um, so let's get started. So, um, Philip, you've you worked on many areas in motor disorder research and, um, and in simulation-based therapeutics. And just one of these uh, includes identifying neural signatures in Parkinson's patients as a first step in programming a new generation of smart devices that you're currently one of the people really at the leading edge of. Um, that, and these monitor the state of patient brain networks concurrent with movement biometrics to deliver precision stimulation as needed. So it sounds like science fiction, but it's here. Um, so the clinical relevance here is it prompts so many questions that we could keep you for hours on that topic alone. But given that our discussions typically center on questions like, what do the basal ganglia do? Um, I thought a good starting point might be to talk about this goldmine of individual human field potential recordings that you've got from motor cortex simultaneous with, with one of two different basal ganglia nuclei, um, which were then crossed cross-coded to movement biometrics. I mean, that's, that seems huge. So clearly the priority is in a study is to understand and treat the individual patients first and foremost. But can you start us off by telling us about this really important work and how it's helping us um, understand oscillatory synchronizations in motor disorders and in whole brain motor systems? Just, you know, give us your nutshell.
2: Sure. Well, I've, I've been um, you know, involved in deep brain stimulation for 22 years and was recruited here to UCSF to, to start the program in DBS in 1998. And, you know, I started out being very intrigued by how deep brain stimulation works. And I was very influenced by Malin DeLong's group, where I had some training at Emory University. Um, and I started out, you know, looking at, at single units in the basal ganglia intraoperatively. And we're only in humans, we're only able to record Know, individual brain cells one at a time. And of course, as it's turned out, there's more and more interest in the in the idea that synchronization across populations of neurons is really important in the expression of movement disorders, motor signs. And that's hard to do in humans with single units because you'd have to record dozens or hundreds of single units at once, which is possible in the animal model, but difficult in, in humans. So um You know, I followed the work of Peter Brown and others um, in the early 2000s about what could be extracted, the incredible information that Brown and others extracted from local field potentials in humans in the subthalamic nucleus. Um, These were tiny signals, 10 microvolts, peak to peak. And I wanted to take that same approach with a multi-site recording approach. So, um, you know, obviously the basal ganglia are connected to a network involving the thalamus and various parts of the cortex. And I felt that recording multiple sites simultaneously in that network would be a good way to advance understanding and take some of the analytic methods that Brown's lab and others were working on, you know, 15 years ago, um, and apply that to a multi-site approach.
0: So the question about these pathological rhythms, so we, we always think about Parkinson's disease being about dopamine neurons and the depletion of dopamine neurons, and um, it's really clear at this point that The real issue is not the loss of dopamine it's the pathological rhythms that are potentially that that are causing the the motor disorders themselves so um, can you talk about the fact that most of these networks like so so how much of this is a compensatory issue that that we're talking about versus sort of like uh you know the actual issue itself is these pathological rhythms and then i i was hoping you could also say something about the fact that we have so little access now it seems to untreated brain. so levodopa is still the, the the current therapeutic that everyone relies on right and that itself is producing potentially so many cellular changes in this network that's then reinforcing these oscillations so i guess my real question is about is about that right is about how this is an old technology. We've been stimulating brains for a while and the levodopa has only been around since the 60s. Are there any clues in some of the untreated, uh, are there any untreated recordings that give us any sense of what untreated pathophysiology looks like versus levodopa pathophysiology? And then of course there's a compensatory issue question itself, right? So there's a lot in there.
2: Yeah, no, you raised the excellent point that a levodopa treated brain is different, right? And even if you wait, um, you know, hours or days for the levodopa to wear out pharmacologically, to wear off, Um, there's still long-term changes in the brain, and many people have looked at this in animal models, particularly at the long-term changes in corticostriatal synapses induced by this abnormal pulsatile, you know, release of levodopa uh, from from, uh, taking medications. You know, it does come about that we have some patients that we treat surgically and can record from who really have not been on levodopa. Some are, are just quite intolerant of it for various reasons, either severe nausea or some young onset patients really get severely dyskinetic with a minimal dose of levodopa. So I have treated people who have not been on Parkinson's medication other than to have tried it, to done it, done a test of it. Although we don't currently have one such patient in our Um, long-term invasive recording studies. Um, We have had patients in the intraoperative recording studies, which is of course more numerous numbers of patients who have not been on on levodopa. Um, I think that the the kind of off-medication features of those brain networks seem seem similar. There is a strong degree of of synchronization um, between neuronal areas. We don't have normal controls, so I'm always careful to call something you know abnormal when we don't have normal controls in invasive recording in humans to work with. But we do have other movement disorders that we treat identically. You know, we treat, for example, isolated cervical dystonia, another movement disorder which only affects the neck, and the rest of the body is is normal, and so that provides one type of control where we're in the in the same in the same structures. So uh, that's one way we get around the the, um, lack of of a normal control. Um, You know, we also, there's some misconceptions in the field that when people started looking at uh, subthalamic nucleus uh, oscillations in the beta range and found that therapy, that is levodopa or DBS suppresses oscillations in the basal ganglia um, in beta, Uh, in in proportion to the degree of therapeutic benefit, people came to the conclusion that, well, beta activity is abnormal and is a a hallmark of the Parkinsonian state. And I never accepted that. Um, You know, clearly uh, what's been well established is that beta band oscillations in basal ganglia nuclei are a good marker of effective therapy, right? They reduce as you give levodopa, therapeutic levodopa or, or deep brain stimulation. That doesn't mean that they were absolutely abnormal to begin with, and in fact, when we've recorded in cervical dystonia and uh, Haggai Bergman and others have recorded subthalamic activity in obsessive compulsive disorder, so a non-movement disorder, no dopamine loss. And you know, we find beta band activity as would be expected as a marker of, of the motor system. So, um, So these oscillatory activities are certainly a marker of therapy. There is some emerging evidence that they also are truly exaggerated. I, my bias from my read on the literature is that, you know, subthalamic beta band oscillations are not necessarily vastly elevated themselves, but other, other aspects of beta synchronization in the motor network probably are quite exaggerated. So for example, coherent oscillations between basal ganglia and cortex, are, are, are likely quite exaggerated, even though the beta band activity within the structure may not be so much. So it's possible that levodopa and, and um, deep brain stimulation reduce subthalamic beta oscillations way beyond, you know, beyond what is normal, right? Reduce it to pathologically low levels, but that is a mechanism whereby they can disrupt synchrony between basal ganglia and cortex, which is, you know, a state of excessive communication between those structures. I lost uh, the the other part of your question.
0: I mean, well, we can we can move on. But I think that the, the the other thing it was about the compensatory, whether these are how how much we can sort of think about these as compensatory versus actual like the the initial insult kind of thing and where that leads us in terms of DBS in terms of, of, of programming DBS and trying to improve things that are more than just about akinesia, I guess, and that's that's another thing I want you to talk about is yeah. the fact it's, that yeah, there are multiple syndromes and symptoms that these these are addressed. But go ahead.
2: It's it's always tough um, in in human research to know what is primary and what is compensatory, right? Because in animal models, you can do more manipulations. Um, You can see if something is causal, you can optogenetically drive something um, in in the way that you want and and, and look more at causality, and we're not um, so much able to do that in humans. There are certain things we suspect are compensatory. For example, um, we noticed in looking at movement-related oscillatory desynchronization in the beta range in uh, Parkinson's patients compared to non-Parkinson's, like essential tremor, there's actually increased movement-related beta desynchronization. That is, when you move, you have to desynchronize your beta oscillations in order to make normal movements. And interestingly, Parkinson's patients do that more so than, say, essential tremor patients, which to me might reflect that they have an exaggerated state of beta to begin with, and therefore they, they must compensate for that. Obviously, Parkinson's patients can move. They don't move normally, but they can move. And so to initiate any movement, they have to really excessively damp down that beta synchrony even more than other other things. So that's an example of something that may be compensatory.
1: So I have a, I'd like to get your impression about what's happened to the model of basal ganglion Parkinson's disease. So in the old rate model, it was really easy to say why Parkinson's patients aren't able to move. It's because the thalamus, has been inhibited and the thalamus is somehow carrying a signal that's required for movement to the motor cortex. Although that signal wasn't well-defined and its necessity wasn't clear, but it did kind of make sense by analogy to the visual system where you can't see if the thalamus can't tell the cortex what's going on in the retina, somehow you can't move if the thalamus can't tell the cortex what's going on in the cerebellum or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh that was the but in that idea the thalamus was sort of shut down and now we think there's just some kind of oscillation in the I guess in the thalamus now that's coming from the basal ganglia so how does that how do we think that is causing that problem with with because the movement problem isn't an oscillation itself where there is a kind of tremor but that's not what we're talking about
2: So, yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, the original rate model uh, that that started off this whole field of of deep brain simulation, you know, did envision the the basal ganglia output, the internal globus pallidus as being an overdrive. It's an inhibitory GABAergic structure. And so it was flooding the motor thalamus with GABAergic tone and, and, and shutting it down. And then therapy, like lesioning the globus pallidus. Re- reduced that abnormal inhibition on the thalamus and allowed it to communicate with the cortex, right? So, interestingly, I think the oscillation model does provide a sort of related concept. If you use the so-called communication through coherence hypothesis, that you know has been elucidated very well by Pascal Fries and others in the field, and that is, you know, that structures that um, oscillate together talk to one another. So let's say there's a state of excessive oscillatory coherence between the um, uh, lobus pallidus internus and the thalamus, right? That can be also um, similar to simply inhibiting the motor thalamus. And if you then disrupt this oscillatory coherence, you, you can, between basal ganglia and thalamus and then cortex downstream, you can interrupt this pathological state of over-inhibition of the thalamus. But it's not by blocking specifically action potential discharge, GABAergic action potential discharge. It's by, you know, dephasing, getting thalamus and and, uh, basal ganglia to not oscillate together. So the same idea can apply. You can then release the thalamus and the thalamocortical pathway from this excessive effect of basal ganglia.
1: So maybe there's some other structure that the thalamus is trying to be coherent with and it can't because the basal ganglia is is just creating a bogus coherence. <laughs> and is that is that what you're thinking? So you can't be coherent with two dephased inputs at the same time. That, if one it, of them grabs you, then you're you're stuck listening to that one.
2: It could be part of it, although you know, it's also quite possible and there's evidence that basal ganglia thalamus and cortex are all excessively coherent. So the way that I look at it is you know, you still have to consider the excitatory and inhibitory action potential discharge pathways. And so why does coherence between globus pallidus and thalamus matter? Well, it's because if they're highly coherent, those GABAergic action potentials from GPI will arrive at the thalamus at the correct phase to excite uh, further action potential discharge or correct phase to, in this case, be, be inhibited, excessively inhibited because it's a GABAergic project- projection. So y- I think you could postulate that one structure is locked in phase with another and therefore separated from the system, but I think you don't have to. You can simply postulate that the oscillatory synchrony between basal ganglia and thalamus, if it's too great, Means that action potential discharge from Gpi is excessively inhibiting the thalamus, and the thalamus may still be oscillating with with cortex, uh, but is you, you, it is still over inhibited because of that synchrony with with, with lobus pallidus. It's it's hard to describe without a lot of diagrams, but that's that's kind of the idea.
1: So that's uh, that's the great explanation, I guess, for just not moving because the, there's some signal from the thalamus that's required for movement. And nobody, as far as I know, we don't know what that signal is or why it's important for movement, but um, but assuming that that's what it is, um, then the thalamus can't give it. But the basal ganglia has connections to a lot of non-pyramidal motor structures that alter movement the, the Hunting reticular formation gets a big input from the basal ganglia and the spirit folliculus. And then this old idea, the oldest idea maybe about basal ganglia is that it's controlling non-pyramidal cortical pathways rather than pyramidal ones. Do you think that that the non-pyramidal globus pallidus outputs are going to have a renaissance of interest? Are they part of what we're looking at in the patient?
2: Yeah, it's possible. In fact, there's already been a mini renaissance of interest in um the palatal outflow to the PPN pedunculopontine nucleus. You know, there was some work empirically that indicated that that modulation of the PPN could improve gait freezing. Um, and that led to a little burst of of clinical trials in in neuromodulation of the PPN. Um Again, reflecting what you talked about, basal ganglia output to brainstem to spinal cord, bypassing the motor cortex. Um, Those studies didn't work well enough to make that a mainstream, you know, effect. We did do PPN stem in a small number of patients, and. There were often effects on gait for a few months. Um, these are typically, though, disorders with relentless neurodegeneration at that stage with advanced gait freezing. So it's a hard thing to treat with just neuromodulation. Um, but, you know, some people are still working in the background on, on treatments for gait freezing with the idea that, that gait problems may use a lot of that non-pyramidal non, um, tract function.
0: So the differences in in symptomology, though, um, you pointed out that they're very, that individual patients have very different um, signatures for how their the, the different types of oscillations are distributed in in cortex versus um, um, the basal ganglia nuclei, according to you know wh- what's happening to them in their in their motor state. But what um, what are, the, what are the kind of ideas about why, why we see that? And, and, and what, why, why would DBS work for everything? And, and you're now seeing that, in fact, it doesn't work for everything. It has to be sort of titrated into very specific temp- spatiotemporal. I mean, it seems like there is more of a temporal component. Is that true or is there a spatial component also? Do you place probes differently depending on where you see the symptomology?
2: Um, so, yeah, those are good questions. Um, we There is some tendency to try to place uh, therapeutic electrodes differently depending on symptomatology. For example, in both the internal pallidum and the subthalamic nucleus, for patients with very strong tremor, so-called tremor-dominant Parkinson's, the anti-tremor effect um, is a little more posterior than the anti-akinesia effect. And I've repositioned brain leads in patients who you maybe have a posterior lead, good anti-tremor effect, not an not a anti-akinesia effect, and vice versa. So there, is, there are these sub territories, And my, my bias in subthalamic nucleus is that, you know, we know from non-human primate work that within the motor territory, the subthalamic nucleus, there are multiple um, you know, functionalities. There is what you could call an M1 receiving area subthalamic nucleus closely related to primary motor cortex. There's an SMA receiving area, that part which is slightly more anterior within the motor area closely related to the the SMA. My own guess um, is that the M1 receiving area, very posterior is more involved in in tremor or that circuit can be modulated for, for better tremor therapy. And the SMA receiving area slightly more anterior within the motor territory Is more involved with 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 the akinesia. You raised another question, though: is why is you know Parkinson's so variable? What determines whether a patient becomes rigid, akinetic with minimal tremor? What determines if they become tremor dominant? It's 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 very unclear uh, how, how this how this happens. And then there's other variations. We have patients with genetic mutations. We have a patient in our long term recording studies with the Parkin mutation, a very young onset. A patient, and that may still have yet yet other patterns. There's still a lot to figure out about why uh, there are so many differences between different patients and what the underlying pathophysiology is. Tremor, of course, is very different from the other Parkinson's symptoms in that it doesn't progress in time. So, you know, most parkinsonian signs: slowness, rigidity, gait disorder, postural instability. You know, they will they will not get better. They will tend to get worse over time. Tremor is an odd one. It can, you can start with tremor and then it can actually get, get improve as the overall disease is worsening. So it doesn't seem to be, to correlate with degree of pathology that is dopamine loss, the way the other symptoms do. Could tremor be some kind of compensatory um, effect for, for other problems in the circuit? It's not clear.
1: So uh, septalamic nucleus has a bunch of regions, only some of them are motor. Some of them are non-motor. I guess you probably try to stay away from those regions, but uh, what happens when the stimulation goes into the non-motor regions of septalamic
2: nucleus? That certainly happens. You know, the, the subphalamic nucleus is about the size of a peanut, and the electrode, you know, the the, the closest spacing we have still has an array that's about 7.5 millimeters long, so you're always going to have contacts that are in the non-motor area. The non-motor area itself is about 4 millimeters long, you know, along the track the, of the DBS lead, and so you have a 7.5-millimeter array, and you're going to be able to stimulate other structures. Um, there's a whole, you know, wealth of studies on ventral STN physiology and stimulation based on the fact that, you know, most of us deliberately overshoot the motor territory with the lowest contact and put it deliberately in non, in a ventral uh, STN, which is more associative and cognitive, it's thought, in the trajectory that we take as opposed to the limbic area. So we have contacts there. Um, Some of them are, Stimulated either deliberately or inadvertently, um, there are certainly case reports of people getting worse mood depression from the, the ventral STN stimulation. There's varying effects of cognition. You know, there's uh, you there's some studies indicating increased impulsivity from ventral STN stem. Others indicating maybe you can treat impulsivity. So it's it's tough to figure out our one of my only formal studies in the in the ventral part of the stn was looking at the physiology of stopping so there was a lot of interest in a prefrontal subthalamic pathway maybe being involved in inhibiting motor action cognitive control of stopping basically and there is a hyperdirect pathway from, from uh, inferior frontal gyrus on the right to the subthalamic nucleus via you know a hyperdirect monosynaptic projection and that uh, the physiology of that pathway can predict the stopping speed of a person. Uh, I had a graduate student, Whitney Chen, who did some nice work on that. That's the only per- work that I've done personally in, 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 in ventral STN. It would be, you know, we, there's people who have electrodes in limbic STN, right? The limbic area is a little more anteromedial. I don't usually go through that. Most people don't go through that area on the standard approach to, to the motor STN, but uh, limbic STN has been implanted more or less deliberately in OCD, for example. And so there's a lot of opportunity to, to study that. And it's, it actually, there's studies showing it's pretty effective uh, for, for OCD.
1: It's amazing a little peanut sized place in the brain would have so many different things in it and that they would all fit. And then it would turn out to be the hub for a lot of treatment of a lot of different things.
2: Yeah. And, you know, people often ask, especially because we, I do a lot of studies with motor cortex leads and say, well, can't you stimulate the cortex? And, you know, maybe you don't have to go through the brain. Maybe you can use a cortical lead to stimulate. And, you know, my guess is if, 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 the, if the problem of akinesia, say, is from an oscillatory act, abnormal oscillatory connectivity throughout the network, sure, you should be able to intervene anywhere in theory to interrupt that. And the fact that, you know, palatal and subthalamic stimulation work equally well for Parkinson's and many disorders does back up the idea that you can go at multiple places in the motor network to interrupt the abnormal activity. Why not the cortex? I bet that if you could cover a whole lot of the cortex, uh, motor or supplementary cortex, you should be able to affect uh, pathological activity. I think the uniqueness of subthalamic nucleus especially and, and also globus pallidus is how the convergence, the incredible convergence of of multiple widespread brain areas on those targets that make them quite effective. Whereas in the cortex if you wanted to effectively modulate the same territory, you'd have to have a gigantic electrode, you know, folding into the into the sulci, etc. So uh, it's generally been a theme in dbs and even the new indications in you know in ocd in depression and various you know pain syndromes that you get more mileage from these subcortical nuclei where there's enormous convergence doesn't necessarily mean that is the site of the you know where the pathological activity exists right it's very likely a, a delocalized network phenomenon so what per- special oh sorry
0: go ahead matt
1: yeah, I had sort of a general question about the DBS. You talk a lot about uh, interfering with pathological patterns of activity, sort of like maybe a soft lesion. Uh, but is that all you're doing or is this somehow enabling uh, normal signaling to take place
2: that, uh, that wasn't happening in Parkinson's? Good question. So you're right. I, we do talk in this field often about you know, suppressing the abnormal activity. Um, are we are we allowing more normal patterns of, of activity to to occur? Um, you know, certainly the idea is by um, removing this excessive synchronization that you will allow um, more normal activity. So, for example, you know, it's thought that to do a normal movement you need to transiently synchronize functionally related areas and do so in a very task-specific way. Though so in the Parkinsonian state, or this is probably true in dystonia as well, when you overactivate neighboring muscle groups, um, you you uh, lock these circuits into an inflexible pattern where they cannot transiently synchronize and desynchronize. So when you release the network from the successive synchronization, then that perhaps that transient synchronization, which is a uh, part of normal brain function is, is, is allowed to occur.
0: So what's special about about 100 Hertz? So that, that's the general frequency it's just the amplitude that you modulate and the, and the location of the probes. Is that right?
2: Yes, um, in general, 100 to 200 Hertz Really, it, that came from a, it started with the early studies of Benabid uh, in Grenoble, France, on thalamic stimulation and tremor uh, in the late '80s, which where he did a you know a, a frequency titration, looked at effects on tremor from thalamic stim as a function of frequency, and you had to get over about 100 hertz to have a beneficial effect, and that's been applied to Parkinson's. You know, that being said there are s- subtle differences and some therapeutic implications of changing frequency. Um, I think the general answer is, you know, why do we need over hundred Hertz? The hand-waving answer to this is the pathological rhythms you're trying to disrupt are, are all lower frequency, you know, beta, theta, alpha, um, to some extent, gamma. And so if you drive the system or you add a stimulus much at a very different frequency, you can disrupt those uh, the, the pathological frequencies. Now people, an obvious question is, well, what if you did 20 hertz stimulation and tried to drive the motor system at 20 hertz? Could you increase bradykinesia? That would be doing causality, right? Uh, no longer just a correlation of beta with bradykinesia. Let's drive it and let's see if we can cause bradykinesia. Peter Brown and others have shown this, it's quite difficult to show, but you can get subtle worsening in bradykinesia from 20 hertz uh, uh, stimulation. Um, It probably, to really show this effectively, you have to give phase locked stimulation, right? So it's just like pushing a kid on a swing set, right? You will increase the oscillation if you deliver your energy at the right phase. You'll decrease the oscillation if you deliver it at the right frequency, but wrong phase, right? When they're moving the wrong way same thing with stimulation we don't yet have the technology to do phase locked stimulation from an implanted device but those groups that are starting to do it with fancy externalized equipment with externalized leads for you can do phase locked stimulation can start to look at these questions of you know can we causally drive an abnormal motor sign from driving the system at what we think are these are these pathological frequencies now you know i also in response to your question wanted to mention that um, we are now, people are now exploring changes in frequencies to address different symptoms. There's an observation if we program someone at 130 Hertz and they have a lot of tremor and it's not getting much better, increasing more to, toward 200 Hertz will tend to make that better. Why? I don't know the theory behind that. Um, also, we have patients who have sometimes a worsening gait disorder or gait freezing from high frequency stem. You reduce the frequency some uh, and some people reduce to 60, 80 hertz. You can preserve you know, s- at least a moderate amount of benefit, but reduce that freezing side effect. So there are all kinds of interesting, unexplored effects of frequency that, that probably will give us many, many clues. One that I'm fascinated by is you know these these uh, gamma band oscillations that is around 60 to 90 hertz that will occur you know in the in the in the in the brains of people who have been exposed to a lot of dopamine especially when they're on levodopa so stimulation can entrain and drive that frequency and we thought we still think this may be a mechanism behind stimulation induced dyskinesias is that you're driving a gamma rhythm which is normally a prokinetic rhythm that is needed for uh, transiently in a coordinated way for normal movement it's been studied in jugglers who have cortical gamma oscillations coming in and out during certain phases of juggling you, if you drive that rhythm have it going all the time it's like you're juggling all the time right and that's and that would be one theory for why why people become dyskinetic so you know can we tune the stimulation in a way that it does not drive the 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 gamma sort of resonance frequency, or drives it just enough to facilitate normal movement without spilling over into excessive movement. These are all really interesting questions we're just beginning to look at.
1: So maybe the oldest question for basal ganglion Parkinson's disease is what is what can we learn about the organization of the motor system by looking at Parkinson's disease? Because I don't think very many like, I don't know, robotics engineers would have imagined a system in which something went wrong and you got the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. You know, it doesn't seem like there's just a mismatch of proprioception and dysmetria or something like that. It doesn't seem even like there's, it's not just a failure to initiate movement because movements once initiated are still running too slow or worse. So is, is there a bottom line for motor systems? People looking at basal ganglia diseases and then trying to figure out what is the information flow that gives rise to normal movements, good movements?
2: Yeah, a huge debate is what can you learn about normal function from abnormalities, especially with invasive recording. We're not able to study uh, normal function invasively; um, in, uh, only only non-invasively. Um, I, I almost feel that's a philosophical uh, question. A bit, um, you know, in the in my early days, you know, m- grant applications would be attacked a lot for just that question. Um, more yeah. recently.
1: Didn't mean to touch that. Uh, didn't mean to touch-
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, More recently, you know, the the NIH and federal funding agencies have have put a lot more emphasis on human research, especially through the Brain Initiative uh, announced through the Obama White House in 2013, which has funded a lot of the kind of work that that I've been talking about. So there was very much a, fu- a bias against. Um, human human studies before with that idea. Well, we can't find, figure out normal function from abnormal brains, but, but that's that's changed quite a bit. Um, it's it's a classic thing in neurology that you that you try to understand uh, something about normal function from from abnormal function. You know, for example, um, as I mentioned earlier today, my colleague Paul Larson found that lesions or stimulation in a part of the caudate nucleus. Um, you know, treat ameliorate tinnitus. And so what does that mean? Does it mean that that part of the caudate is involved in, you know, phantom perception? And what does that mean for normal perception? So um, I think there are really fascinating, you know, leads that you can, that you can have in this area. Um, But it is true that it's hard to, to uh, tease that out a hundred percent. You know, I remember you were probably there, there was a, one of the meetings of the, um, International Basal Ganglia Society, where there was a panel on what do the basal ganglia do? And there were four different experts. This was like eight or 10 years ago or something like that. And, and you know, there was a surprising lack of consensus. I remember one answer from uh, one of the Israeli labs was dimensionality reduction is what the basal ganglia do, right? And then of course, there were the models of, of you know, action selection. Um, but, you know, we, we still don't know very well um, there's, of course, enormous interest in, in motor learning. Uh, and one of my colleagues, Doris Wong, is, is working on that also with our invasive chronic, chronic recording patients and has shown some very interesting theta band changes in the striatum as someone successfully learns a motor sequence, which is exactly what's seen in, in, in rats running a maze who are learning a new sequence. Um, and, that, and that also brings up something else. You know, I look at human research as very um, symbiotic with animal model research, right? We might be able to identify certain relevant rhythms or problems, and then you can go to an animal model or normal, a normal animal and test whether that really is is causally related to to, to the problem. Um, So by going back and forth between, you know, animal research and human research, that's one way to help Address this problem where, 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 well, if it's an abnormal brain, are we learning anything about
0: function? I suppose at the end of the day, it's enough that you heal people and make them actually able to function.
2: <laughs> you know, and another, I guess, you, you mentioned sore spots about grant referees. We all have them. And my work is often accused, kind of correctly, of being not very mechanistic, right? And that's somewhat the nature of human work. We don't have as good of tools as, say, Charlie, you have in your lab to, uh, to dissect mechanism. And then I also tend to care a little bit less about it than maybe I should, because at the end of the day, I'm trying to improve a therapy, right? And so if we have these uh, identify brain activity that we can harness to drive a DBS system better, that's kind of a little bit more my interest than... Figuring out the exact mechanism of it, I have to admit, I'm a little embarrassed to admit that. So that criticism of of this, this work not being that mechanistic is 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 a good one.
0: Everyone can't do everything.
1: When people right. who are studying mechanism have to have something to find out the mechanism of, mm-hmm. right? You have there has to be a phenomenon that matters that you know you care about and then you would set out to find the mechanism of that. The worst nightmare for a mechanistic scientist is to find out the mechanism of something that doesn't matter at all. And to spend years doing it. Yep.
0: So true.
2: Yeah, uh, it's, I, I will mention one, One. Uh, there's been a couple of exciting interactions uh, which sort of illustrate what, what you're talking about. So um, a group in, in, in Sweden was working on a, a rat model of dyskinesia and discovered this cortical gamma oscillation in rats that became dyskinetic from chronic, you know, overuse of levodopa. And they were quite excited to find when we found the same thing in dyskinetic humans. And it was, it looked almost identical. It's the one time I've seen rat data and human data look almost identical in a pathological condition. So that was, you know, exciting for both of us to, to, yeah. to do that. and. Likewise, you know, my, my colleague Bob Knight at Berkeley has done a lot of uh, studies um, of normal cortical function in, in cognitive neuroscience, looking at phase amplitude interactions, and how those mediate different cognitive functions. And then we, we had a study that found in Parkinson's that the motor cortex has abnormal phase amplitude interactions. So I think that excited Bob Knight. To see wow, you know, it's when you have something you think is normal and then when it goes wrong in a disease, that's that's a nice, a nice link. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. I know you have an incredibly busy schedule and this has been a treat. And uh, thank you, Philip Starr, for joining us and everyone. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this is great. Thank Sorry you. about the rough start there with the